So, the, uh, as far as I can tell, the holiday party season has begun. Anybody ha has anybody been to their first holiday party? Not yet? Okay, oh, yeah, we've been, we've been a few. Who's got like a bunch coming up? Like you've, the calendar, yeah. And when I think of the holiday party season beginning, you know, you've got maybe office parties, you've got maybe family parties, you've got maybe an acquaintance who you know a little bit and they invited you to their open house and you feel bad, say no, so you go even though you don't know anybody there. Parties, you've got all those parties. That means what we all need to do is we need to reach into our storage closets or up into our attics and we need to pull out the box of small talk skills, right? We need to remember how to do this, this ritual, this classic tradition called small talk. I had a friend, uh, a college roommate, actually three years roommate in college. He was a master of small talk. He walks into any room and just instant. He's never met you before and he is deeply involved in like a, just a profoundly small talk conversation. I think to myself, his, his name was Alex. Alex's small talk skills were like the Vatican Library. Endless and brilliant. You never knew what joyful discoveries you were going to find. But maybe, maybe you don't identify with that. Maybe instead you're like, my small talk skills are a little more like one of those little libraries out in somebody's front yard. Like, there's books in there. I don't know if anybody wants to read them, but there's books in there. But regardless, when I think about this thing we do, right, we, we do this thing called small talk. When I think about it, I actually think that small talk is about something really big. When I think about what we're ultimately doing during small talk is we're asking people to share with us, who are you? And then we're saying, let me tell you a little bit about this is who I am. Small talk is really a way for us to Form relationships. Get to know one another. It's an exploration of our identity. Do I know who I am and am I willing to share it to you? Do you know who you are and are you willing to share it with me? Well, we got to start with, the, you know, we got to ease into that. But hopefully small talk leads to medium-sized talk leads to big talk. Is that how it works? So Alex, um, college roommate, he would go into a party and, and it didn't matter where you started with him. You'd be like, hey... Uh, Alex, you, you like sports? You, you following the Vikings? Went to college in Minnesota. So the Vikings, that was like a thing we talked about. Uh, and Alex would just, he wouldn't miss a beat. Oh my gosh, not only do I like the Vikings, I actually have an uncle who was a kicker for the Vikings. Vikings. And just the other day, he invited me to the stadium and he toured the locker room and I got to go out on the field. So when I watched the game last week, I was like, oh, I've been there. It's amazing. He just tells these great stories. And I'd get back to our dorm room later that night. I'd say, Alex, I didn't, I didn't know you had an uncle who was a kicker for the Vikings. Yeah, I just made that up. It wasn't true. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You can't do that, Alex. He's like, I don't know. It makes small talk more enjoyable when I just make up stories. I don't think there's any chance Alex is watching this, but I hope you are, Alex, and I love you, and I miss you, and you're great. Uh, but here's what it cost me to think about. If small talk really isn't uh, about something small, it's about something big. It's about knowing who we are and getting to know other people. Whether or not the people we're talking to are actively lying about who they are, or whether or not we even know who we are and are willing to share it with one another, 
it strikes me that knowing our identity is complicated. Even if we're perfectly honest with ourselves and with others, we still spend time in our lives regularly at different seasons. Anytime there's a major transition, we are people who regularly have to pause and look around and look inside and go, who am I? Like, do I, do I really even know who I am? And the moment I start to feel just a little bit of confidence, like, you know what? I think I, think I know who I am. I think I've got a little more comfort in my own skin. This is, this is the person, this is my personality, this is what I like, and I like what I like. The moment we get there, it finds that very often, on the very next step, we trip and fall into the hole of insecurity, where we go, I know who I am, but whew, I don't know if I want to tell you what I happen to know about who I really am. Right? And then you mix a holiday party into it when you're like, and I don't know if I actually trust you enough to tell you who I... We have all sorts of fears. We have all sorts of insecurities. We have all sorts of life complexities that take the challenge of saying, this is who I am. And then the second challenge of how do I live it out in the world? And it makes that a lifelong, complicated thing to work out. Well, it turns out, as we're going to talk some more about the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses, the prologue to John's Gospel, uh, a radically different introduction to the story of the birth of Jesus, a radically different type of Christmas text than we talked about last week from Matthew, or that we'll talk about next week from Luke. As we look at the Gospel of John, here's what I think. The Christmas story holds the key to unlocking the answer to that critical question of who am I? And here's my big idea for the morning. I think if we want to really know who we are and not just know it, but live confidently in that identity, the starting place is we have to first know who Jesus is. So we're going to talk about four things that the gospel author John tells us about who Jesus is. And after we spend some time hearing these four things about who Jesus is, we're going to bring it back around and say, what does that therefore mean about who you and who I is? (laughs) That's not the right word. Are. Who you and I are. But you... Sorry. Um, Come on. All right. Uh, Last week. Okay. Let me briefly compare and contrast. Last week, we read the Gospel of Matthew, right? Introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew's Christmas story, the the birth narrative in Matthew, starts in a very human, kind of gritty, very familiar sort of setting. We, We hear a genealogy. Okay, maybe genealogies aren't that familiar, but it's talking about names and places and people. We meet Joseph and Mary, a mom and a dad, and then we hear about their life situation. A messy, weighty, heavy life situation. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is born into that story, a human story, that even though the historical details are different, feels very similar to the sort of life that we might find ourselves living. The Gospel of John could not be any more different If Matthew's story is familiar and gritty and human and it's like Jesus shows up right into the midst of a life we get, John's story starts with something utterly different from our day-to-day experience. Very first line 
And the Gospel of John says, in the beginning. And if you find yourself thinking, I think I've heard those words before somewhere else in Scripture. You're right. You have. They're the exact same words from Genesis 1.1, which reads, I don't even need a new slide, in the beginning. Turns out, if you look in the Greek, both the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Greek in the New Testament, it reads, in the beginning. So John starts his gospel, not in this gritty, human, familiar, sort of stuff of life picture. He starts his gospel literally before the beginning of time. And not only that, John doesn't even start with the name of Jesus. As a matter of fact, 17 verses go by before John says, we're talking about Jesus here. Rather, John uses metaphors. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was there in the beginning with God, and He was God. The first thing we learn about Jesus before His birth from the Gospel of John is that Jesus is eternal. The way that we experience life, day-to-day living, the, the stuff of all that we worry about and think about, Jesus is something entirely outside of, bigger, and beyond that. So John starts with a metaphor, the word, and the word which is eternal. And then he takes that metaphor, and he pretty quickly pivots to another metaphor. And he says this word, uh, we can't capture this word in just one word. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So somehow, this word, which is eternal, is also light. Uh, Eight days after I started as the youth and young adults pastor here at Centennial, um, I was, I was, I mean, I was a youth pastor, but I wasn't really running anything at that point, so I'll say I was put onto a bus with a group of students and leaders, and we drove 24 hours to the Canadian Rocky Mountains. We could have driven two hours to the Colorado Rocky Mountains, but we drove 24 hours to the Canadian Rocky Mountains where the sun almost never sets. It was the first of what would come to be called our adventure trips. And one of the adventures on this particular trip was we went caving. We were all given denim coveralls to wear because the cave was muddy and wet and filthy. We were given hard hats that I think had different like headlamp things on top of them. And we spent a long time crawling and and squeezing and slipping and climbing deep into this cave. And after a while, we come to some sort of an end point. We hit a wall that is unclimbable. And the guide goes, all right, everybody, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. In just a second, I want all of us to turn off our headlamps. And we're going to try to spend as long as we can in complete darkness and complete silence. Turns out high school students need a few tries at the silence thing. Like they're, you know, giggling and other distractions. But after a while, after a while, we managed to spend, I don't know, at least a minute, maybe a couple minutes. In, you know, you think you've experienced darkness before, but when you go deep into a cave, it is utter darkness. I don't know if 
I don't know if the fact of being covered by tons and tons of rocks weighed heavier on my mind or the simple experience of darkness. It's this heavy, strange sensation. And after our eyes had all adjusted, the guide pulled out this tiny little pen light and turned it on. And even though the darkness was oppressive, that tiny little light brilliantly illuminated the whole cave. It's no wonder that throughout human history, across cultures, light has been and continues to be a powerful image of hope. And John says that this eternal word, whatever that is, whatever that means, is a light shining into all of the dark places in this world. The second thing we learn from the Gospel of John is that Jesus is hope. He is a light which is life, which is shining down upon us. So John starts with two ideas that, like we said, are just utterly other, different, foreign, not our day-to-day experience. And right after that, he speaks one of the most breathtaking sentences in all of Scripture. This eternal word, which is, which is light embodied, which is the source of all light. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or in the probably familiar paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, the word became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. I stumbled on another translation, uh, New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger in his commentary on John says, the word was made flesh and he pitched his tent among us. And I thought, oh, that's a fun little word image. I wonder how he came up with that. And then it struck me, wait a minute, this is like a serious academic commentary Scholars don't come up with clever word images and serious academic commentaries. What's going on? And so I looked up the word. The word, which we are familiar with hearing dwell, literally means to pitch your tent. And I thought, well, that's fantastic. And then I found one Greek author, Xenophon, if you want to go look him up, who actually uses it to to mean not so much like put up a physical tent, but to refer to somebody that you would share your tent with, a person that you would be a bunkmate with. Jesus didn't just pitch his tent among us. He got down on his hands and knees. He crawled on into the tent called our life, and he said, hey, I guess we're bunkmates. I remember... uh, uh, living in China, and my wife was pregnant with our first kid. And because we were pregnant and it was our first kid, we didn't have any baby stuff. And if you're going to have a baby, you need baby stuff. You need stuff for the baby to sleep in and on, and you need stuff for the baby to wear, and you need stuff for the baby to do. You really don't need any of this stuff. Civilization made it for a long time with nothing but a wooden stick. But in our culture, this is what you do. So a friend of ours who lived far south in China called us up and was like, hey, All of our kids are grown. We're getting rid of all our baby stuff. You want it? Yes, I want it. So I take a taxi ride and a bus ride, and I go down to their small town, and I get all the stuff, and we pack it all up, and uh, they serve me Starbucks coffee, which was a treat, because at that point in China, you can't just find 
coffee anywhere. So I had a cup of Starbucks coffee. And then I loaded up two giant suitcases full of all this stuff. And on the outside of one suitcase, I had lashed on the crib, which we'd sort of broken down and strapped to the suitcase. And on the other suitcase, I lashed on one of those kid, like circular play things that you like set the kid in. And back in the day, they had wheels so the kid could like walk around and then they're like, that's dangerous. So we'll take the wheels off of it. But you know, you'd plop the kid in and they, so I'm, I'm already six foot two. At that point, I had a lot of hair and it was still blondish. I stand out pretty, pretty well already walking around, especially small town China. But now I'm all those things and I'm carrying these like ridiculously large suitcases with crazy stuff strapped all over to it. And I'm taking a train back to my hometown, Zhengzhou. Now, I'm, I decided to splurge. I bought a first class sleeper car ticket, which meant I only needed to share the car with three other people as opposed to sharing it with five other people in second class, riding in style. So I get to the train station. You know, everybody, the Yiguaran, the Yiguaran, the foreigner, look at the, look at, you know. And I walk out onto the platform, and I've, this is small town, I've never been to this train station, I don't really know where I am, and I don't know where the front of the train is or the back of the train is, so I don't know where my train car is. But I see a group of guys standing over here next to a train car, so I walk up to him. Hey guys, is this my, is this my car? Show him my ticket. And they just bust out and laugh. They say, are you an American? I say, yeah, I'm American. Ah, the laughter's even bigger. Come to find out, this is a group of uh, Chinese migrant workers who you know, they're in their coveralls and they've got five-gallon buckets and bags of stuff. And if you're in this, um, if this is your job, your profession, when you ride the train, there's only one type of ticket that you ever get. And that's called the no-seat ticket. You're allowed to ride in a big, empty train car. And the five-gallon bucket you're carrying with your stuff in it, that's your seat. Chinese people have a very like wonderful, lovely, compassionate, and, and really actually highly respectful understanding of foreigners, especially of Americans. So when a big, strange-looking American walks up to them and says, is this my car? Pointing at a no-seat train car. This is literally the most incomprehensible thing in the world. Because in their minds, this sort of people and this sort of people never ride in the same train car together. (laughs) Don't we do that often in life? We like to take things and we like to split them into categories. And we go, this over here, it doesn't go with this over here. One of these things just doesn't belong here. If, If you can reach all the way back to... Sesame Street. The Gospel of John says that the the greatest imaginable separation of categories, God who is eternal, who is perfect, who is the source of all light and life, and humans who are finite and frail and fallen, that uncrossable chasm, God has just crossed. And he said, I'm coming down 
I'm getting on my hands and knees. I'm crawling in and I'm pitching my tent with you. I'm not going first. I wish in the story I had said, oh, I'm going to not ride first class. I'm going to ride with you guys. It'll be. No, I didn't do that. I rode first class. It was great. But what it says to me is the third thing John tells us about Jesus is that though he is God, Jesus is humble by taking on flesh and becoming one of us. Jesus is eternal. He's the source of hope. And he carries that out in a way of the greatest possible humility. And then the last image John gives is this. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known to us. This idea of seeing God, or actually of no one ever having seen God, it's really significant throughout the Old Testament. One of the critical moments comes in the book of Exodus when Moses says, hey God, I want to see your face. And God kind of chuckles and says, oh, that's cute, Moses. And then the Lord says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. I mean, in a sense, God is talking about this very separation that we just named. That, rather I should say, that which is finite and fallen and frail, our our messy, broken world, cannot possibly come in contact with that which is holy and eternal and perfect. In the book of Exodus, he said, if that were to happen, if you were to see my face, you couldn't possibly see my face and live. But Jesus comes and not only crosses that uncrossable chasm, but he says, now that which was previously unseeable can be seen in the flesh by all humanity. The fourth thing, fourth thing we learn from John is that Jesus is God. And not only is he God, but Jesus now reveals God in a unique way. The author of Hebrews said, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. So that now what was once unseeable, we could only get a glimpse of only dimly as in a mirror, like a reflection, now is here on earth for all to see. So we're talking about our identity. Who am I? Am I willing to live confidently into that identity? And I said, in order to know who we are, what our identity is, I think we should first start with Jesus. And John introduces us to a Jesus who is eternal, who gives hope, who is humble, and who not only is God, but who reveals God for the whole world to see in a way that the world could never have seen before. Now, if you look really closely at the structure of verses 1 through 18, this whole prologue to the gospel, it turns out that the structure is written with two clear halves. And the two halves mirror one another so that they pretty directly point towards a central, pivotal moment in that whole text. And this was a common thing for ancient writers to do. They take the most important thing and they put it right in the middle and they sort of make everything before it and after it point right up to the middle. The interesting thing is, in the Gospel of John, 
These 18 verses are undoubtedly a pretty clear structure like that, pointing to a middle point. And if it's fair to summarize that the first 18 verses are almost entirely about who Jesus is, the middle point, the crux of the whole passage, actually isn't about who Jesus is. It's about who you and I are. And the middle point, it's actually an invitation. Here's the central text. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John spends 18 verses talking about who Jesus is so that at the center of it all, he can make an invitation into identity for any and every one of us so that we might know who we are. Namely, that in all the complexity of our lives, in all the confusion and chaos of figuring out who am I and what does it mean to live that way in the world, we might say first and foremost, whatever else is true, I might know that because of who Christ is, I am a child of God. And then here's what I found to be really fascinating. When you consider this invitation to all who believe in the name of Christ, God has given you the right to become his children. Throughout the rest of the the New Testament, if you read, what you find out is that these four things, and even more, but these four things that John just said, this is who Jesus is, we find that what is true of Jesus is named and becomes true of Jesus' followers. What's true of the first son of God becomes true of the children of God. What's true of the word became flesh is true of all of us who have flesh and are living in the life of the word. Jesus, who is eternal, and then in the Gospel of John we hear, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. We get to participate in that which is eternal. Jesus, which brings hope to the world. And in the book of Ephesians, a hope which is light. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Jesus is humble. And Paul in Colossians says, Anybody who calls yourself a child of God, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And Jesus, the Word became flesh, who made visible to all humanity that which God had previously said, you cannot see me and live. All of us who follow him now become the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. So that the Jesus who showed God the exact representation of of God to the world, now says, because I'm in you, now when people see you living in me, they see in some strange, mysterious way. You don't want to overstate it, but they see through God's people the goodness of God. So let me ask you, when you ask the question, who am I? When you say to yourself, like, you know, I don't know, I mean... I've been told I'm this, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it fits very well. When you say, you know what, I, I think I know there's some stuff inside me that excites me and, and kind of brings me alive, but I, I'm too nervous to really let it out. When you think to yourself, you know what, if I told people that, would they, 
Would they like it? Would they not like it? Would they believe it? Would they not accept it? What are the fears? What are the insecurities? What are the challenges that you face when you ask the question, who am I? And let me suggest this. No matter what the details are in your life, according to John's telling of the Christmas story, because Jesus took on flesh and became a small child, he gave us the right and the confidence to say, whatever else we know about our identity, you are a child of God. I was thinking about the volume of Christmas decorations currently scattered around my living room. Not quite looking pretty yet. And still this morning, my youngest Asa came up to me holding two ornaments, one with his big sister Naomi's picture on it, and one, I don't know what it was, another thing. And he gave me one, and we walked over to the tree, and we hung a couple ornaments on the tree together. And I was just like, I just there's nothing that warms my heart like hanging an ornament on a tree with this kid that just made a destructive mess of my whole house but I just love you right and that's how God feels about each and every one of us sure sometimes we make a destructive mess of his house but man does he just love to hold our hand When we pause and say, I want to do this moment with you, Daddy. So I ask, what is your move going to be? And here's how I'll kind of wrap it up. Um, We're going to go to holiday parties. We talked about last week. We're going to buy presents. We're going to give presents. We're going to get presents. We're going to maybe travel. We're going to get together with friends, we're going to get together with family. As we do all of that, we might find joyful, safe, life-giving places where we get to be exactly who we are. We might have to to wrestle through some of the awkward, socially challenging things, making small talk with people who are lying to us and making up stories and we don't even know it. But whatever you do, whatever you do, however you understand your identity this Christmas— Will you be a child of God? And it turns out, I'm going to have the worship team come back up when you guys are ready. It turns out that this isn't just an idea that the gospel writer John and many others spoke to us. It gets a lot deeper than that. Jesus actually embodied it for us. The very last night of his life, he was having a meal with his disciples, the 12 who were closest to him, including the one who was about to betray him. And while eating that meal, Jesus picked up a, a, a plain, common, simple loaf of unleavened bread. Almost like the, the plain, common, simple way that the word became flesh. And Jesus gave thanks. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, the reason I broke this bread is because my body is going to be broken. Jesus said, my body will be broken so that your broken identity might be healed by my light shining in to you. In the same way, at the end of the supper, Jesus took a cup 
And he said, this cup is a new covenant. A covenant is a relational contract. It's a promise of relationship. It's a promise that says, I'm going to be there no matter what. And God made a covenant with anybody and everybody who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. And the covenant is so powerful that it was not made in the blood of any animal or in any other thing of this earth. It was made in the blood of Christ's own body. Blood which he shed for you. For the forgiveness of every one of our sins. For the healing and the redemption and the reconciliation of every way we are broken. Not because we earned it in any way, but because God, the Heavenly Father, loves his children and wants to give it to us. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that just like we live in a broken world, too often our identities are broken. We struggle with fear. We struggle with insecurity. We struggle with uncertainty. We say, God, who am I? Who did you make me? How do I live according to the way you want me to live? And into that brokenness, you, the eternal word, you stepped down. You got on your knees. You crawled in. You laid down next to us in the tent called our life. You said, I'm right here with you. God, having heard your words of your body broken and your blood shed, I pray that all of us might remember the gift you have given, a gift which is the promise of forgiveness. And with that forgiveness, the gift of a new identity. That whatever else this world might say, we are your children. I pray, God, if there's anybody here who hasn't received that invitation, received the gift you promise, that even right now in their hearts, they might say, yes, Lord, I confess my brokenness and I acknowledge you are the one who can give me life. And now to all of us, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, may we do so remembering you, Christ our Lord, born humbly with us, resurrected gloriously to save us. May we receive it in the confidence that we are all children of God. And all God's people said, amen. The table is set. The servers will come to the forward and the back of the room. I invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper.